Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Here's a bold claim for you. The most influential biblical interpreter in the world today is not a pastor, a scripture scholar, or a bishop. He is a clinical psychologist with no formal training in biblical studies and no church membership. That is a quote from the 2021 book, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life by Christopher Kayser and Matthew Petrusik. These two scholars examine, examine the public intellectual Jordan Peterson's discourse on particular stories in the Bible, such as that of Cain and Abel, and point to commonalities between Peterson's approach to religious questions with that of the Catholic intellectual tradition. They note, for example, how Peterson's online lectures and published work resemble aspects of the thinking of such figures as Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine. The authors also delve into how Peterson's views on religious and philosophical matters resemble and differ from those of more modern figures such as C.S. Lewis. This is a provocative, thought-provoking book about an an often controversial figure. Like him or loathe him, Peterson has been a prominent voice on the public stage on matters philosophical and, in the author's views, theological for some time. The book critiques him from a Catholic standpoint that illuminates both Peterson and the Catholic moral universe. Kayser and Petrusek show how elusive Peterson can be when it comes to declaring himself one way or the other on his own religious leanings. Their book is valuable reading for those with no particular religious feeling at all, but who are intrigued by and have benefited from Peterson's commentaries on biblical texts, and for those of strong religious feeling, not necessarily Catholic either, but want a better understanding of where Peterson stands. The book enhances our understanding of the appeal of of Jordan Peterson for the spiritually questing among his audience and offers intelligent commentary on fundamental issues such as what is truth and the importance of free speech and the arrival at it, how to lead an upstanding life, and how to face adversity courageously. Let's hear from Christopher Kayser, one of the two authors of this book on a major cultural figure of our time. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Christopher Kayser, co-author with Matthew Petrusek of the 2021 book, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Uh, thank you, Hope. I'm happy to speak with you. Well, I'd like to start with the foreword to your book, which is by the Catholic bishop and public intellectual Bishop Robert Barron. That's interesting because Bishop Barron, like Jordan Peterson, is a well-known public voice in the humanities, but he differs from Peterson in being a clergyman, whereas Peterson has very, until very recently not been known by for commentary on theological and straight-up religious matters. But Barron says in his comment, in his foreword, that he finds Peterson uh, an encouraging figure because he's bringing people to questions of Christianity. I wonder, could you tell us a, a, base, a bit about the basics of who Peterson is and why and why you were drawn to him as a as a figure for a book? He says, I want to point out too that there's a wonderful interview, an online interview of you with your co-author with Peterson himself, and he and he says rather endearingly in a rather boyishly fashion, he's surprised that that his book that, he, that his work has is attracted to such eminent scholars as yourself. And I wonder what 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 drove you to him. Well, I was fascinated by his uh, public lectures about the book of Genesis. So if you go to YouTube, you'll see that his most popular YouTube videos are his lectures on Genesis. They've been viewed uh, literally millions of times. And in these lectures, what he does is give a line-by-line kind of commentary on the creation story, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. 
And when I heard these commentaries, I was really fascinated because I saw a large overlap between what the secular, uh, non-church-going psychologist was saying and what is found in the Catholic intellectual tradition in figures like Origen, uh, St. Augustine. And this overlap I found very fascinating. So I kind of began to delve into Peterson's works uh, more and more. And that ended up leading to this book, uh, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, that I co-wrote with uh, Matthew Petrusik. So that's kind of the origin of the book. And it really arose because of uh, Peterson's lectures on the book of Genesis. Uh, you, in the book, Bishop Barron actually compares Peterson to another Catholic, another another public intellectual, Joseph Campbell. Is that an apt comparison, do you think? Or I think so, yeah. So both Peterson and uh, Joseph Campbell are Jungians. They draw on the psychologist Carl Jung. And one of Jung's big insights was that we can see in various cultures and various stories uh, certain archetypal figures. So we see, for instance, the uh, devouring mother and the beneficial mother. We see the uh, vicious father, the corrupt king, and the wise and good king. And so you see these sorts of archetypes in all kinds of stories, and you see them also in our contemporary culture. So you have, for instance, in Star Wars, you have Darth Vader, D the dark mm -hmm. father. And, you know, that's representing a kind of archetypal figure in the human imagination, a kind of corrupt father figure. So, so these archetypes are found all over uh, in all over civilizations and different mythologies and different stories. And that was one of the big insights of Carl Jung. And uh, Joseph Campbell picked up on that. And then Jordan Peterson has picked up on that again. Well, another figure, too, that you talk about in the book who also dealt with with archetypes and mythology and was also a scholar and who dwell, who dwelt in academia is very similar. Uh, I'm talking about C.S. Lewis. And he was interesting because he he came a little bit earlier to his public celebrity than Peterson did in his life. But they both were not intending to be public intellectuals or public figures. And they kind of became so through their writings and just through their, I guess, their intellectual charismas. Could you talk a little about C.S. Lewis and his, and also the fact that C.S. Lewis is a Protestant thinker rather than a Catholic one? Is that correct? That's right. That's right. So Lewis began, though, not as a Christian at all, but as an atheist. And uh, he was a Cambridge professor of literature and basically ended up moving towards and eventually converting to Christianity. And part of his conversion uh, arose out of his understanding of myths and stories. And when he read the Gospels, he came to realize that the Gospels really are very different in form and structure uh, from myths. So uh, myth, mythological stories begin often in, along these lines. Uh, a long time ago, in a place far, far away, mm -hmm. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas the Gospels are very much more concrete and specific, you know, talking about Jesus of uh, Nazareth being born in Bethlehem in the reign of Caesar and et cetera, et cetera. So Lewis, at least drawing on his study of mythology, began to see, well, the, the gospel stories are very much not in a mythical uh, kind of uh, genre. And he began to see them as a myth come true. So they did share with the myths something of the idea of tapping into the most fundamental drives and aspirations of the human person. But for Lewis, at least, they were a myth come true. And so, yeah, I think Lewis and Peterson uh, do share some similarities. Uh, outside of my book, I've written a little bit about the similarities of, of Lewis and Peterson. And uh, who knows where Peterson will end up. But yeah, Lewis went from being an atheist uh, to being an Anglican 
uh, Christian. Uh, and then, uh, and Peterson, I'm not sure where, where he is right now, but he does seem to be in a kind of journey because he's someone who's very much a seeker, who's trying to gain greater insights into these, into these matters. And so I really wouldn't be surprised at all if his uh, final destination was to become a Christian. Well, you see in the book too that he he approaches the Gospels as as a, a bit of an adventure story. And I wonder, could you talk about who his audience is? I believe it's it's often considered stereotypically he's just lumped in as always the young the young white male, uh, alienated young man. But that's not true, is it? Or is, does he have as wide as audience as, as Lewis did? I believe Lewis cut across both genders, but is Peterson more a a male um, attracted? Uh, I mean, uh, not not that is to say, who is who is his audience? Well, I think he's trying to speak to everyone, but like mm -hmm. every uh, person, you know, not not all groups of people are equally interested in what you have to say. So if you think of someone like Oprah Winfrey um, or the people on The View, well, their audience <laughs> is mostly, mostly female. Um, right now, are there some men who watch The View or who who are big fans of Oprah? Well, yeah, of course. And so Jordan Peterson really sprung to fame on YouTube. And if you look at the demographics of YouTube, it turns out that that is more male than female. Hmm. Now, that doesn't exclude the possibility of uh, women being very interested in his work. And I think that's true. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that uh, his audience is derived really from his YouTube exposure. And YouTube is itself uh, more male than female. Um, now, is that a problem? I, I, did not, well, I did not know that. I'm surprised to hear that because I think of women as, as drawn to the video form, but they're, they're interested to hear that. So. Yeah, yeah. My understanding uh, is that YouTube is more uh, more uh, male than female. So that might be mistaken, but that's that's what I understand. Yeah. Well, you make an interesting point that Peterson uh, approaches Genesis as, as he, he doesn't see any conflict between science and religion in, in his presentation. Also, you make the point that he, he doesn't see nature as as derived, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't see God and nature as synonymous. Could you explain why that is important in his view of science and how that might be attractive to the young, to maybe technologically minded young men or young audience that is, is has been shy of religion because of the fact that they thought as, saw it as irrational or, or old fashioned or, or intellectually mediocre <laughs> or, or unattractive. Can you explain that Peterson's appeal to them? Sure, sure. So when we when Peterson reads Genesis, he really emphasizes, you might say, the universality of these stories. So if you think of the story of Adam and Eve, you could read it in a very simplistic and naive way, as if it were a, a, a version of contemporary science. But Peterson thinks that's really a big mistake, that, that we need to, if we're going to understand Genesis, put Genesis back into its original context. And that's true, really, if we're going to understand uh, a single word or, or a sentence. So if we think of the word gift, the word gift in uh, English means a present like you get for your birthday, but the same word in German means poison. Now, how do you know if I mean a present or poison? Well, you know that from the context, right? Our whole conversation has been in English. And so if I say the word gift, you naturally uh, assume, uh, probably properly, that I'm, I'm talking about a present. If our whole conversation had been in German, and I was a professor at a German university, and you were a native German speaker, well, then that same uh, word would mean something very different. So if we're going to understand Genesis properly, we need to put it back in its historical context. And so what some people do today, which is, I think, a big mistake, is to try to interpret Genesis as if it were trying to do contemporary science. 
And that's a little bit like reading the book of Genesis and looking uh, in Genesis to see, well, should I buy the new iPhone or not? Well, that's a silly way to read Genesis. Genesis is not you know, in favor of buying the new iPhone or opposed to buying the new iPhone. It's just not about iPhones at all. And if you try to read Genesis as if it's about iPhones, what you're doing is radically misreading the text. And so in a similar way, some people read Genesis as for or against evolution. But again, that's a radical misreading of the text. The original author of Genesis wasn't thinking about evolution. In fact, no one in the ancient world was for or against evolution. It just wasn't a thing, just as iPhones weren't a thing back then. So what is Genesis getting to? What is its original context? Well, Peterson points out, I think quite rightly, that we understand Genesis best if we put it in dialogue with other ancient stories. And in the ancient world, there were many rival stories of creation. And these stories of creation uh, had multiple gods who got into a big fight and a battle and a war. And as a result of this chaos and violence, the world as we know it arose. And Genesis is giving a counter narrative to that. And Genesis is saying, no, the world is not a chaotic random battlefield, but rather the world is ordered. And the world is the result not of chaos and violence and just random stuff happening, but is the result of rational speech. And so Peterson really emphasizes this point, which I think is really helpful, because, again, if we're going to understand Genesis properly, we need to put it back into its context. And what happens for many people is they read Genesis in a flat-footed, simplistic way, as if it is for or against contemporary science. But really, that's like reading Shakespeare's Sonnet 18, you know, when Shakespeare says, uh, shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art more lovely and more temperate, rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short of date. So say I read uh, that sonnet by Shakespeare, and then I go to the weather almanac and look up the winds in May, and it turns out that in May there's calm winds. And then I say, well, Shakespeare is terrible at telling us about the weather. Well, that's just a very unintelligent way to read Shakespeare's Sonnet 18. Shakespeare is not trying to report on the weather. He's trying to do something different and something very important. And in the same way, uh, Genesis is not trying to be for or against evolution. It's just not about that. It's about something else. And I think Peterson does a good job of, of making that clear. Well, one of the things you mentioned is that the sense of order that can be found in Genesis. And is that a, is, is part of a Peterson's appeal that this has been a very disorder? His rise coincides with a quite a bit of social dysfunction. I mean, it, it, it encompasses the rise of the transgenderist movement and covers the pandemic and the socioeconomic dislocation from that as part of his appeal that he he offers a sense of, of order. Although it's interesting too, his, his, his view is rather dark compared to, I, I think of Thomas Aquinas as a rather hopeful figure and St. Augustine as well, but but Peterson seems a much more much more bleak. Is that is that inaccurate or? Yeah, I would say that is a fair point in this respect, that in comparison to Aquinas, I would say Peterson is relatively pessimistic. But Augustine of Hippo, actually, I'd say is, is much more like Peterson. So mm-hmm. Augustine lived in a time, as you may know, where the Roman Empire was collapsing. And so Augustine, I think it's fair to say, had a very realistic view of the weaknesses of human beings. Whereas I'd say Aquinas is, is again, more, more optimistic. He's more hopeful. Uh, I, this may reflect his biography. Aquinas had a, a relatively a stable life of faith where he was kind of a faithful person throughout his whole life. Augustine, as you probably know from his biography, 
you know, was a, a kind of flirting with the Manichaean religion and was a skeptic. And I mean, he kind of went through this big journey where he had very much ups and downs and his own passions, as, as he tells of in his confessions, were dominating him and ruling him and such. So I would say that uh, if you have uh, Augustine and Aquinas as sort of representing a more optimistic and pessimistic view, I would say that Peterson is more uh, heading towards the Augustinian side of things rather than the Thomistic side of things. Well, you make the point in the book that his oftentimes Peterson is not explicit and and you mentioned too that you're not sure where he is on his path and it's his his personal life has been rather turbulent in the last 20 or actually the last two or three or four years could you discuss has that has that enriched his his understanding of the bible or or strengthened him or was or he was already a pretty strong person to begin with i mean his his defiance of the whole transgender language pronoun business was got got, that's how he became to fame originally wasn't it is it? Yeah. How, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, you're absolutely right that that Jordan Peterson has really gone through some very significant uh, personal challenges in his life. I mean, most significant, of course, was that uh, you know his wife uh, came very, very close to death, and in mm-hmm. fact, was on death's door for a number of months. Mm-hmm. She had cancer, and the doctors said basically there's no hope. And I mean, it was just terrible, terrible. And you know, he's been. Uh, he's been together with his wife since they were both teenagers. I, if I remember, he serves, I think they met when they were like 14 or something or 13, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, basically his whole life. And, you know, he's married, has kids with her. And so, uh, you know, you can only imagine what that does to someone when they're the love of their life and their soulmate, their spouse is on death's door. And then he personally went through terrible, terrible suffering in terms of his own health, uh, terrible uh, physical suffering, mental suffering. So he has really been through, um, I'd have to say, much more suffering than is uh, customary for the average person. Mm-hmm. Now, how has that affected him? Um, well, he seems to be a quite resilient person. And in his uh, recent book, Beyond Order, he talks about how his family uh, and the love that he has for his family and his close friends really helped pull him through all these terrible, terrible uh crises of health and and et cetera, et cetera. So I think in a way, uh, again, I, I can't point to a place where he says this explicitly, but it seems fair to say that he has grown to be even more grateful than he was previously for the support and love of his family, of his friends, of his wife, of his two children. And so I think there's a kind of growth growth there. Um, but the suffering you went through is the kind of suffering I wouldn't wish on anyone. I mean, just terrible, terrible, terrible suffering. And actually, I think it's quite a testimony to his personal uh, resilience that he's able to come back and, you know, be back on a book tour and and writing things and doing uh, podcasting and things like that. Because I do think there are some people that they go through terrible suffering like that, and they're just kind of crushed. And it's mm-hmm. just, they kind of give up on life and they just, I don't know, watch TV for the rest of their life. They're just kind of laid low. And uh, no, he seems to have come back in a very strong way. So I'm, I'm happy that he's has that health and that strength to be able to do that. Well, in the book, there's even a, you even compare him very effectively, very movingly to the story of Job, and also the persecution, people losing faith in him, and, and and he has been very much attacked for his views. And you make a good point too that when people accuse him of of sexism, that he does write very movingly about his his wife and his daughter, and how and how that men are strengthened by the the role of women in their lives. Um, you mentioned too in the book that, and speaking of his reaction to to gender roles, and 
you, you say that he he holds Adam as in his disposition on Adam and Eve that he holds Adam as more blameworthy for the fall than than Eve. And I wonder, could you talk about his interpretation of Adam and Eve? Sure, sure. So, um, I'm not sure. I'd have to look back at the text, but I'm not sure it's true to say that Jordan Peterson himself blames Adam more than Eve for the fall. But mm. it, it is true in the Catholic tradition that some figures, uh, like Saint Irenaeus, they blame Adam oh, okay. and Eve, and and their their rationale is something like this: um, both Adam and Eve did wrong, but. Uh, Adam is someone who is explicitly told by God in the text not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, whereas there's no record in the text of Eve being explicitly given that command. So if I have two children and I tell just my son, don't do this, and then my daughter hears about it from some other way and my son does what's wrong, it seems like my son is more to blame because he was explicitly given this command. And secondly, uh, if we look at the text, Eve is pushing back on the suggestion of the serpent, right? Eve says to the serpent, well, you know, I'm not sure about this and God gave this command and she's sort of resisting. Uh, again, the text says nothing about Adam resisting at all. It just says he took the fruit and ate it. So if you have two people who both do wrong, but one of them kind of tries to do the right thing and pushes back and hesitates, and then the other person doesn't do any of those things and just automatically does it. Well, it seems like the one who does it, you know, automatically and easily is more to blame than the one who pushes back and tries to resist. So at least some church fathers like St. Irenaeus thought that Adam had a greater uh, burden of guilt than Eve did. Um, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we are talking today with Christopher Kayser, co-author with Matthew Pertusek of the 2021 book, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. And Christopher, in the book, too, when you you examine, um, you dissect very meticulously and illuminatingly um, Jordan's discussions of many of the basic stories of Genesis. Could you discuss his 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 views on Cain and Abel, and also his also he he he's, he writes rather movingly of Cain in a rather sympathetic fashion, which is a rather interesting take on him. Could you discuss? Yeah, that? yeah. So the story of Cain and Abel is a very short story. But Peterson sees it as really jam-packed with deep meaning that also is important for us uh, to think about today. And so he doesn't see the story of Cain and Abel simply as, oh, there were two brothers a long time ago and one killed the other. But the story really is about uh, the human condition. So all of us, whether we have a brother or not, find ourselves in comparison to each other. And it really is a very human thing. We can't help but compare ourselves to our neighbors, to our friends, to people in our lives. And the story of Cain and Abel is about how comparison can go wrong. So Cain and Abel both sacrifice to God, but the sacrifice of Abel is accepted by God and the sacrifice of Cain is not. Now, Cain, when he comes up short, could say to himself, well, you know, I really need to grow and develop and you know, I was unhappy that this happened, but this is an opportunity for me to really, uh, you know, strengthen myself and move forward in a positive way. Well, he doesn't do that. He becomes very envious. And so you see him, rather than try to learn from this or try to grow from this, he thinks of uh, eliminating his brother. And that's exactly what he does, of course, is he kills his brother. So the story of Cain and Abel, in other words, is uh, fundamentally about the dangers of social comparison. 
And this is, again, something that's so human. We compare ourselves to others, you know, am I more wealthy than this person? Am I more good looking than this person? Is this person stronger than I am? Is this person more popular than I am? And this is very, very human. And because it's so human, uh, you know, we can really uh, learn from the story. We can learn in this case, uh, how, uh, what not to do, how things can go so very wrong when we engage in social comparison and then we come up short, we can be filled with these negative emotions of envy, anger, even hatred for those that we view as better than us. And so Peterson, again, is drawing on the story as a kind of archetype that is applicable really to every single person living today. And he seemed, that seems to be part of his appeal to young men that he provides. He, he basically, it's a love, tough love, isn't it, that he's saying to young men, don't just stew and resent and re, in a, a stew of resentment, just achieve something and accomplish something. Is that is that part of his, his appeal to them or... Because no one's saying that to them. They're saying, oh, well, you have mental health problems and you, you, you yeah. have your fragile psyches and all that. Yeah, I think that's right. So I think part of what, what appeals to young men in particular about Jordan Peterson's message is this sort of call to heroism. Hmm. Now, women, of course, can be heroes. I mean, think of Joan of Arc. I uh, think uh, of Mother Teresa. I mean, I certainly think of her as a very heroic figure. But I do think that young men are really drawn towards this idea of being a hero, having a high calling doing something that is going to demand sacrifice and it's going to demand the very best from them. And so I do think that that appeal to heroism resonates with many young people, uh, many young men. But I wouldn't want to say that this is only for young men. There are certainly young women who who have feel this call to heroism and want to do something really heroic and amazing and, you know, uh, what would you say, uh, noteworthy. Uh, but I would say in our culture, as you probably know, uh, the biggest problem in our culture isn't that young women are failing. It's really that young men are failing. So if you look at high school dropouts, right, they're mostly men. If you look at college dropouts, they're mostly men. If you look at people addicted to drugs, they're mostly men. If you look at people that are homeless, again, mostly men. If you look at alcoholics, mostly men. So, you know, for whatever reason, uh, and there are, I think, a number of reasons we could talk about, uh, men, especially young men, are really having serious trouble today. And so, you know, to the extent that uh, these people are called out of mediocrity and called towards being heroic, I think that's a very positive thing. But again, I wouldn't want to say that for Peterson, uh, he's saying, well, women are not called to be heroic, or that doesn't matter to them. Well, no, I mean, there's the call to heroism is really for everyone. Well, I should stop. I should probably stop emphasizing his appeal to young men because you make a. I mean, I'm a female reader of the book, and I found it very enriching. And I've had to merge with a lot more, a lot more interest and awareness of who Peterson was as a result of it. So, as a female reader, I commend you for making it appealing for everyone. Uh, one of the things that's interesting too, you talked about his belief in heroism. He also has a, a rather what might seem counterintuitive emphasis on intellectual humility, which I don't usually associate with heroism in particular. But can you talk about it's, it's a really very nuanced view of, of, of a person's humanity and what is involved in heroism versus not versus hubris, for example? Yeah, yeah. I would say that heroism really has to be linked with humility. And, and the reason I'd say that is that if you're going to achieve something uh, great, uh, if you're going to really be a hero, it seems to me you have to be grounded in reality. And that's really what humility is. Sometimes people misunderstand humility as uh, thinking yourself, oh, I'm, a, I'm just a worm. I'm the worst thing ever. 
Well, that's actually not humility. Uh, real humility is grounded in the reality of who we are as human beings. And so the humble person recognizes their humanity, recognizes that they have strengths and weaknesses, and based on that groundedness, that reality, uh, moves forward in a positive way. So to do something great in the world, it seems to me we, we have to avoid uh, detaching ourselves uh, from reality. And one way to, to detach yourself is a kind of uh, pride, right? Where you say, I'm so amazing, I'm perfect, I'm you know invulnerable, I'm infallible, I'm invincible. Well, that's obviously pride, and that is uh, really going to get you in big trouble, right? The hero has to understand that they do have limitations and that they can't do everything all the time for everyone. On the other extreme, though, you'd have a kind of humiliation, which is, again, not humility, a humiliation where you put yourself down and say, well, I'm hopeless and I'm helpless and I'm a worm and I'm just without any value and I can't do anything. Well, that also is is problematic. So when we think about humility, I think we need to think of the Latin humus, which means ground. So to be a humble person is to be grounded, right? Not thinking yourself an angel, not thinking yourself a worm, but recognizing, well, I'm human. And that gives me limitations. It gives me gifts. But that's the reality of who I am. And if, when we recognize who we are as being created by God, as being human, I think that's the way to move forward with trying to achieve something good. Because again, we're going to overshoot if we don't recognize the reality of who we are. Well, speaking of overshooting, another uh, chapter or uh, section of your book, which you examine um, Peterson's think dis, dis, his own dissection of various parts of the Bible. Could you talk about his his anti-utopianism and his view of overshooting in, the, in his in his discussion of the Tower of Babel? Yeah, yeah. So the Tower of Babel, famous story, of course, where they're going to build this tower that reaches all the way to heaven, and that's a kind of image you might say of someone who tries to control everything. They're going to make the divine come down to earth. And utopian visions basically are overshooting and, and lacking in humility, because utopian visions are saying, look, I'm so smart. I'm so good that if you just give me enough power, I will make the world fantastic. I'll make the world heaven on earth. So if you make me the dictator, uh, if you give me total power, I'm so smart and I'm so good and I'm so amazing that I'll be able to run everyone else's lives it just in an amazing way. And we're going to have a utopia, right? We're going to have heaven on earth. But the reality is that every single human being is weak. Every single human being is uh, not knowing everything. And so we can't, in fact, run the whole world just by our own uh, visions of how things ought to be. So I think there's a kind of humility in terms of what we can expect out of human life. So if I if I expect heaven on earth, well, I am bound to be very seriously disappointed. And then if I'm the dictator and I think, well, everybody needs to do exactly what I think and the way I think and, and how I think, well, again, I'm, I'm usurping in a way God's role. You know, only God should be obeyed unconditionally. Every human authority has its own role, but it's a limited authority. And so, yes, we should, if I'm in the military, I should obey the general, say, with respect to military things. But the, the general's authority is limited. He can only command me in a certain realm. And so I think Peterson's pushing back on kind of utopian visions that say, look, if you just give, you know, the government or the dictator enough power, well, then everything is going to be straightened out and all the injustices in the world will be righted and we're going to have, you know, perfection. We're going to have heaven here on earth. In fact, Peterson's very um, keen in terms of the history 
noting that when uh, people are given absolute power, as took place in the Soviet Union, as took place in Nazi Germany, the result is not heaven on earth. Uh, the result actually is hell on earth. And so mm -hmm. Peterson wants us to avoid that kind of mistake in the future. He also he also talked talk in the book about his interpretation of the story of Noah and the flood, and that he's he, he tends to warn that is Peterson tends to warn people you never know what horror horror is on the horizon, so you have to gird your loins and prepare. Well, also you you talk about how he believes in living living as if he believes as as if there were a God. Could you talk about that? Because that's really fascinating. That that's a difference between a huge difference between Lewis, who believed there obviously was a God, and Peterson's much more nuanced, not quite not quite there yet uh, attitude. And is that is that was that frustrating? Is that frustrating for you as a as a professor of of matters very much related to the existence of God? Yeah, that's a good question. So Peterson does often say, uh, if he's asked, do you believe in God? He'll say, well, I uh, try to live as if God exists. And I have a lot of respect for that. And I try to live as if God exists also. And to think about your life and say, well, okay, if God really did exist, what difference would that make for my life? And if the answer to that question is no difference at all, <laughs> Well, then I think Peterson would say, and I would agree with him, well, there's something really wrong there. Because if God exists, what that means is there is a being who is perfect truth, perfect goodness, and perfect love, a being to whom I owe my whole existence, a being that I really owe love and obedience to. And so when we think about the idea of living as if God exists, well, that seems to be a very noble idea. It's a noble ideal to live as if there is perfect love and to live in imitation of perfect love. Now, I would say this, though. If you live as if God exists, the next question that you could ask would be, well, if God really exists and God is love, well, would God reveal things to us to help us? And my answer to that is, yeah, it seems pretty plausible. If, if God really exists and he loves all of us, it's pretty plausible that God would reveal something to us to help us, to help us to love him more, to help us to love other human beings more. And of course, the Christian idea is that God did exactly that, that Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate. And he did reveal to us more about how to love God. And what Jesus had to say is that if you want to love God, that the way to the Father is through him, is through Jesus. And so we grow in love for God by uniting ourselves to the body of Christ, uniting ourselves to Jesus. And so if that's right, then the next question would be, well, how exactly am I going to unite myself to Jesus? And an answer to that seems to be, at least if you read the New Testament, that unite, you, you unite yourself to the body of Christ through baptism, through the Eucharist, through receiving Holy Communion, through confession through becoming one with the body of Christ through these sacraments. And so for me, to live as if God exists leads quite quickly to the idea of living as if Jesus is the incarnation of God, and that leads quite quickly to living in the church that Jesus founded. So I commend Peterson for a very bold and very important first step, but in my view at least, there's step two and step three, and those are really the culmination and the perfection of step one, living as if God exists. 
Well, you mentioned Richard John Newhouse in that respect, where he is he is he a little bit between you and Peterson in that he that who Newhouse, as I understand it from your book, believe that if you live according to as act as other is a God that inevitably you will believe in God because the form the the belief will follow upon your 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 conduct. Is that is that where does Peterson fall between you and New? Or am I am I misinterpreting Newhouse? Well, yeah, Newhouse's idea is that to uh, live as if you were a person of faith is already, in some sense, to be a person of faith. And so I think the idea is something like this, that we are shaped by our actions. And think about a non-religious topic. So if I want to be a loving friend, uh, what should I do? Should I sit around and wait to feel love? Well, I could do that. But another way to be a loving friend is to do actions that are loving for other people. And the more you do that, the more the feelings of love uh, arise in you. I mean, think about people who adopt children, right? They don't have the feelings of love for their children before the children are adopted. But once they are adopted, those feelings of love do typically arise. Now, faith is not a feeling. Uh, faith is a conviction, a trust in God revealing. And yet faith typically comes along with feelings of trusting in God and so forth. So Newhouse's insight, and this is not original with Newhouse, Blaise Pascal talked about this too, is that if we want to be a person of faith, what we should do is do the actions that a person of faith would do. And this is basically founded on the kind of insight that people don't like to experience cognitive dissonance. And the cognitive dissonance is basically where uh, I believe one thing, but my actions don't go along with that. Well, I can go along that way for a while, but typically if I believe one thing and my actions are the opposite, uh, eventually my beliefs are going to shift to accord with my actions. So if we want to be people of faith, it's vital. It's so important to practice the faith, right? To pray, to go to church, to receive the sacraments, to do what people of faith do. And that actually can help us to understand uh, in terms of faith, understand the truths of faith much better than we would if all we did was say study or just think about it. So that action and belief really go together, I think. I was going to say, you mentioned the the, the idea of, ch of child rearing and that Pearson often in your book uses um, paternal language and, and he frames his arguments as, as if he was talking to about, we talked about discipline and child rearing and many of his, his anecdotes or the, the language he uses. Could you talk about his view of, 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 of a human being as a, as a child or, 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 or how, how, how we are children who have to be, I'm, I'm sorry, could, could you discuss that a little bit? I'm not, I'm not doing as, as clearly I'm not doing it well myself. So yeah, yeah. So Peterson is a father, of course. He's got a couple, a couple children, and I think if we think about his view of children, he's not a Rousseauian. So Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the French thinker, he his view was that children come out virtuous and perfect, and not just that children are cute and uh, you know adorable when they're little, but that they're already perfect yeah. in the moral sense, and then they get corrupted over time. Peterson's view, though, of children is much more like Aristotle's where children, of course, they're adorable and cute, but children don't come into the world courageous. Little children are afraid of everything, right? A two-year-old is scared of the dark. Mm -hmm. So if a child is going to grow into a courageous adult, the child needs to be trained and, and to go undergo, uh, repeatedly do actions of a courageous sort to grow in courage. 
and we can grow in courage, right? That's what, say, training in the Marines is all about. You have someone who's not very courageous and not ready for battle, and they go through Marine training, and then afterwards they are courageous and they are ready for battle. And the same thing's true of other virtues. So think of the virtue of temperance, right? Enjoying bodily pleasures in such a way that it doesn't undermine love of God and love of neighbor. Well, little kids don't have that, right? Little kids typically, you know, they go out for Halloween and they'll eat an enormous amount of candy and they don't have temperance yet. But if they're going to grow in temperance, hopefully their parents help them to say, okay, well, have a couple pieces of candy, but don't eat, you know, 30 pieces of candy in a row because you'll get sick. And, you know, hopefully kids grow in temperance and they grow in justice. They grow, hopefully, in practical wisdom. So we aren't born, on Peterson's view, automatically good and virtuous, but we can grow into that. And a big part of that is how we're raised by our parents. And then when we're older, when we're adults, that we take charge of our own growth. So I, as an adult, you as an adult, anyone who is an adult, can take charge of their own growth and development. And this is obvious physically, right? If you want to be a good swimmer, you can start going every day to the pool and swimming and get, take lessons and become a good swimmer. But if we're going to grow in the moral life, right, if we're going to become more temperate, more courageous, more wise, etc., well, we need to do actions that a wise, temperate, courageous, just person would do. And the more we do those actions, the more we grow in those strengths that enable us to achieve happiness. So Peterson, I think, is, uh, I'd say, much more Aristotelian than Rousseauian in his view of children and how uh, they really need to grow and develop to achieve everything they can achieve. Well, you mentioned the word courage quite off, quite quite movingly there. I wonder, in, in your book, you discuss Peterson's view of courage and also the Catholic view of courage. Could you define for us what 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 is courage? Because, for example, I wonder, during the pandemic, many of us were rendered very powerless that we were dependent on the state for finances for 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 being allowed to even leave our houses we depended on on the authority figures to to tell us what what and where we could go and what we could how we could behave is as what was is peterson's views strengthened people in the pandemic or has as his star fallen because in some ways could you could it be argued that his view of empowerment has been a little bit discredited because just we were not, we were rendered neutered in a way. Yeah, so courage, I'd say, is the inner strength that enables us to do the right thing, even though circumstances are difficult. So the kind of paradigm case of courage would be facing death and battle, right? So, you know, your homeland's about to be run over, you know, by uh, the Nazis or whatever, and you, uh, you know, fight back. You, you face death and battle to defend those that you love. Now, most of us are not going to be facing death and battle, but all of us virtually every day have situations where we know the right thing to do, but we're afraid to do it. We know the right thing to do, but it's going to cause us some suffering. We know the right thing to do, but it's difficult and hard. And so a part of us, the weak, cowardly part of us says, oh, don't do the right thing. Just do the wrong thing. Make it easier for yourself. Go along, mm -hmm. go with the flow. Uh, but a courageous person says, well, no, I'm going to try to do what's right, even though I know it's tough, it's difficult. And this virtue of courage, it seems to me, is a very much an everyday virtue, right? We need this to move through life in such a way that we're really doing the loving thing, even when it's the tough thing. And so that's really what the virtue of courage is all about. And it's a virtue that, you know, again, you don't need to be a soldier or face death in battle. Just everyday life provides us with occasions where we know what's right to do. We know it's loving to do, but we might be tempted because it's hard, 
or challenging or difficult or will cause, will cause us suffering to not do that thing. Mm-hmm. But again, if we have that inner strength of courage, we say, all right, I know it's hard. I know it's tough. It's going to cause me some suffering, but I'm going to move forward in a positive, loving way, despite all that. I think you make very clear in the book that he that he lives that, that he he has in his battles for free speech, for example, he's a, ch- a great champion of, of, of finding the truth. And he says, you cannot find the truth unless you have freedom of speech. And I have taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask, you now, Chris, the final question that is the traditional one on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now? Uh, well, actually, I'm working on a new book. <laughs> oh, good. Well, what, well that's, what, that's, that's, that's what the New Books Network is all about. So, Well, good, good. So I uh, just this morning was working on a proposal uh, for a new book. And the book, I'm not sure what it'll be called, but it might be called something like... Um, how to Overcome Distraction in Prayer, uh, Letters to God and Letters from God. And the book kind of arises out of my own experience. So um, I pray every day, but I have to say, when I start speaking out loud to God, or when, when I say words in my mind to God, very often, you know, within a minute, I'm distracted. And I think about, you know, what I'm going to have for lunch, or I think about what happened yesterday, and I just I just get off off track. But there's one way I found that really has helped me to pray a lot. And that is, if I sit down with a pen and paper and write a letter to God or to Jesus or to Mary, I find that I'm really not distracted. And then, uh, so in the book, what I do is I have prompts from scripture, from uh, various saints, various sages to sort of prompt reflection. And then there's a little space for a person to write a letter to Jesus about this. And then this is important, a space also to imagine what Jesus would say back to them. So like this morning, uh, I was praying and I was thinking, oh my gosh, this person, I'll call this person Francine, is really irritating me. And, you know, Francine is uh, just always talking about herself and she doesn't ask me about myself. And, oh my gosh, she's a really kind of irritating person. So, you know, I wrote to Jesus about that. And then I imagined what Jesus would say back to me in response. And so I kind of thought, well, I think Jesus would probably say, well, look, yeah, it is true, Francine talks a lot, but uh, isn't it also true that she's really generous? She's a really helpful person. I mean, you know, when you had that party, she came over and helped you prepare. And and so, yes, she has some weak points, but she also has some real strengths. And isn't that also true of you? I mean, you have some strengths and weaknesses too. And wouldn't you want someone to uh, be gentle with you in terms of your weaknesses and really focus on and celebrate your strengths? So I kind of imagine what Jesus would say back to me. So the whole book is a series of prompts, one for each day of the year, and then imagining, you can imagine, you know, you can write a letter to Jesus or Mary or a saint about that, and then imagine what the person would say back to you. So that's kind of the book I'm working on now. Well, that sounds wonderful. It's, it's nice to have somebody that believes in writing letters because we've kind of gotten out of the habit of that as well. We're texting God or, or we're emailing God, but just writing a letter to Jesus is, 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 is a rather charming idea and also an important one. And with that, I would just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Christopher Kayser, co-author with Matthew Petrusek of the 2021 book, Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you.